0: This morning, as I began, I ask a question. Has the world shaped the church more than the church has shaped the world? Or has the church shaped the world more than the world has shaped the church? From the first chapter of Acts, it becomes clear that by instituting the church, God's intentions were for the church to have a greater impact in the world than that the world would have on the church, the church was his means for influencing the world. In fact, a very part of the definition of an institution is an institution is a behavior-shaping entity. And so the church is meant to instill Christ-like behavior by directing people towards Christ. Therefore, the plan of the Lord is that the church influences the world. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that's the case today. Today. And so I ask again, has the church shaped the world more than the world has shaped the church? There are many ways to evaluate the answer to that question. But I think one of the identifying markers that we can measure is by its prayer. To know that a church is shaped by the world, you only need to measure its commitment and its constancy in prayer same could probably be said of us as individuals as well. This morning offers a transition in our text from 1 Timothy. Previously, we had ended at the first chapter, and that first chapter has been marked by Paul's introductory remarks to Timothy. But now Paul moves into some deeper teaching in light of the circumstances that are taking place. And the first topic he tackles here is prayer having been influenced by the world the church in ephesus is steeped in false teaching no doubt prayer has been lacking then as they have become more self-reliant than god-reliant and so paul urges timothy to begin his labors at the church in prayer and so i invite you to take your bibles and turn with me To the book of 1st Timothy, 1st Timothy chapter 2 And I want to bring to you a message that I've titled An Offering of Prayer Four Facets of Well-Rounded Prayer And as always I ask those of you who are able to please stand For the reading of God's Word 1st Timothy chapter 2 Beginning in verse 1 First of all then the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire that in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. You may be seated. Something that I have a great appreciation for is the aspect of glassmaking. It's hard for me to fathom how a person can take something so tiny and envision turning it into a magnificent work of art that could be bought or sold and enjoyed by people. Even more, I'm fascinated by the fact that you can take something clear and then add various colors to it and intertwine them and get these different designs. It's a process that I can sit and watch for hours. The other day, I was in a glassmaking studio a place where they had four or five different workers and three different kilns, each one varying in temperature from 2,100 to 2,700 degrees. And it was amazing to watch these apprentices, and that's what they were. These individuals were there to learn the work. They were apprentices. And so it was amazing to watch these apprentices as they worked together to handle these large globs of molten glass. At one point, they took one of those globs and they began stretching it and stretching it further, working it into a piece that was about a half an inch in diameter, but eventually about 20, 25 feet long. And then after it cooled, they broke that piece into about six inch pieces. And those would become the base of these feathers that they were creating. How they could stretch it that far without it breaking is astounding to me. i come to appreciate the artistry and skill that it comes from working with glass, to the point that if you visit us in our living room, what you will find is a stand with various glass ornaments, and only a couple, but they're next to a window so that the light can hit them. For some time now, I've been looking forward to this year, to visiting a particular place in order to pick up one of their glass ornaments. I've been anticipating picking that up for some time. And so as I went to that place this last week, I started pawing through what they had, and after some time, I finally settled on one that was red and about four inches in diameter. It contains 250 different facets. They told me I didn't count them because I don't have that patience. 250 different facets, and when each catches God's sun, S-U-N, it sets off this amazing brilliance and just magnifies the beauty. As I was looking at that ornament and thinking about it the other day, it occurred to me that those facets are what I think of about prayer. For so many people, prayer is often one-dimensional. It contains only one facet. But prayer is multi-dimensional. It's like that ornament. It contains a number of different facets and when those facets catch God's sun, S-O-N, it sets off an amazing brilliance. And it speaks to how beautiful prayer really is. Paul speaks to those facets of prayer this morning. Having outlined the work ahead for Timothy in chapter one, he now moves on into really the bulk of his teaching. It is here that he will begin to set the standard of what church looks like in order to guard against false teaching because that's exactly what's taking place in Ephesus. But he begins with prayer. In verse one of chapter two, First Timothy says, first of all then, I urge supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. He begins, first of all, then. That is to say that because of what he's just talked about, everything he's just brought forth, because of the false teaching, and because of the task that Timothy now has, he's saying the task to confront the false teaching then results in prayer. The plural of those words, supplications, intercessions, thanksgivings, it indicates that prayer is meant to be communal. It was not Timothy's task alone to be praying, but rather this was the task of the church. Paul urges it that way. Something to be undertaken by the corporate body of Christ at that time. Their lack of prayer was likely a symptom of their theology. And so the place to begin in order to recover a biblical orthodoxy and a biblical orthopraxy was to begin in prayer. This morning, I want to focus on just one aspect of this verse. And I want to look at the different types of prayer that Paul mentions here. And I want us to see four facets of well-rounded prayer My hope is that it will cause us to look at this and in looking at it it will stimulate a deeper relationship with the Lord by stimulating deeper prayer. And so I want you to note first the facet of supplication. The facet of supplication. That's the first thing he mentions here is supplications. Man's inability means that we must depend upon God's ability. One of the most critical problems to how we live is that we try to live more in what we cannot do rather than in what God can do. What I mean by that is we rely more on our own strength, even though we can't often do most things, rather than relying on God who can do all things. And so it is him we should rely upon. The reality is that we can do nothing but God can do everything. When we are unable, He is able. Therefore, the wise person, the wise Christian, would do well to depend more on God than on self. We do this first by prayer. We're able to do this because the Lord, in His divine wisdom and His divine grace, has made Himself available to receive our supplications. By its nature, A supplication is an expression of a need marked by a person's inability to fulfill that need. It's a state of helplessness in which the person is struggling and must appeal to a higher authority. It's like a peasant who may appeal to a king for a tax relief or relief from burden for tax. Having hardship, not having the money, he reaches out to the king and says, "I, I need relief from this tax burden. Because only the king can grant that request. For those of us who have placed our faith in Christ as his followers, we have been granted an audience with a king, fortunate enough to be able to share our supplications with the only one who has the power and the wisdom and the ability to even grant our most significant request. But what is a supplication? Our Bibles use that word, although if you have the NIV, it may say petition, or for those using the NASB, it may say entreaties. Little do we consider the significance of that word. Supplication, or, or again, NIV says petition, but it's, it's much more specific than that. Supplications are marked by need. Need. To share our supplications with the Lord is to petition Him for our deepest spiritual need. It is a call from the spiritually destitute that God would grant spiritual restitution and refreshment. A supplication is also marked by an aversion to evil. This doesn't appeal to the Lord that the effects of evil, the rule of Satan, and the impact of those who oppose God would all be thwarted. It is the type of prayer that Simon requests of Peter. In Acts chapter 8, Simon is a man who has practiced magic. He's a magician in Samaria. But like all the other Samarians, he has heard the gospel. And what the text tells us is that many of the Samarians believed, including Simon, (laughs) And then at that time, hearing what's going on, God sends the apostles, Peter and John, to lay hands on the people there, that they may call upon the Holy Spirit then to enter those people that did believe. When this happened, and when Simon saw the power that was there, he offered Peter money. and said, if I give you money, I want this gift to call on the Holy Spirit like that. Rightly, Peter rebukes Simon calling upon him to repent and really describing just how wicked Simon was in that request. And he issues all these decrees, may this happen to you, may you lose all possessions, and so on. And Simon responds with a supplication. He asks Peter, pray for me too that the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. It's a prayer request of an aversion of evil. It's an expression of his greatest need and his expression of his desire to see evil averted. Finally, supplication is marked by urgency. Evil's at hand. And the petitioner needs the Lord's help now. The urgency is seen in Luke nine thirty-eight through 40 where a man approaches Jesus, and perhaps you'll recognize the words the text reads. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. This is an entreaty to the point of begging the Lord to act very quickly. These three characteristics, the mark by a need and aversion to evil and the urgency, remind me of an early martyr who, facing imminent death, sought the Lord, appealing to him in prayer. And so while the flames rose up to engulf him, preparing to face his death, the soon-to-be martyr cried out, Lord, I pray not for my physical salvation, but for my spiritual salva- for their spiritual salvation. Do not save me from these flames, but save them from the flames of eternity. Lord, do not save me from the death that consumes me, but save them from the death that consumes them. His final words were a supplication. It was marked by a need, by an aversion to evil, and by urgency. His prayer expressed the greatest, deepest spiritual need at that moment, and it wasn't for himself. His suffering for Christ was about to bring him to Christ's presence. That martyr's personal need, greatest spiritual need, was about to be met, because upon death he was going to see Christ. The most significant need at that moment was for his persecutors to see Christ, It's also marked by an aversion of evil. Not wanting to see Satan win over these people, he's asking God to prevail upon their souls. And of course it was marked by urgency. In light of eternity before him, seeing the effects of the false teaching that had caused these persecutors to the point of hating him so much that they were willing to put him to death, this was a call for the Lord to act quickly. And so this is the first facet of prayer, a facet of supplication. When we pray, does our prayer convey urgency? Does it convey the desire to see the Lord conquer evil? And does it convey deep, longing, spiritual need? In our time of prayer, is our time of prayer request for the Lord to make us more comfortable here? or to make us more comfortable in heaven. Supplication turns us towards the Lord by reminding us of our inability and of God's ability. I want you to know second, the facet of prayer. The facet of prayer. When I say a facet of prayer is a facet of prayer, or when a facet of prayer is prayer, that sounds odd. That's like saying a facet of Robert's personality is Robert, of course. But when we look at prayer and consider what it is, we're talking about the totality of prayer. Prayer is everything. And then the first ingredient of prayer is supplication. And now the next ingredient is a general prayer. Supplication is specific to the pleading to the Lord in desperation from our deepest spiritual needs. But prayer is more general, requesting that the Lord remove lamentable things. This is a more general facet of prayer, and it is a reminder of sin in the world. We know not just from the word of God, but from our own experience that sin has consequences. The result is that sometimes life feels heavy laden, full of burden and suffering. There was a time when this earthly life lacked such pain and there was no straining for daily survival, but we all know that that changed in the Garden of Eden at that first sins from Adam and Eve, and from that moment on, life was not the same. It added things like weariness and sorrow to the joy and fellowship that they had with the Lord, but the Lord offered himself as a liberation freeing everybody from those burdens. Christ implored broken people to come before him for relief, saying, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my soul is easy and my burden is light. In those times of difficulty, that comes as a consequence of sin, we often say, trust in the Lord. But well, what does that even mean? If someone asked you, in whatever situation they were facing, could you explain what it means to trust the Lord in this circumstance? Could you give them an answer? It begins with prayer. Psalm fifty-five, twenty-two, we read this morning. Cast your burden on the Lord. And he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Prayer in a general sense is our response to sin. It is the casting of our burdens that result from sin's consequences onto the Lord and asking him to remove all those lamentable things, death and disease and destruction. Though this facet of prayer is general, it's, it's very specific in its motivation. It's characterized by a heart that desires to see the Lord's will elevated above man's will. Such a prayer has three heart attitudes. First, it's an expression of watchfulness. Ephesians 6.18 Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. First off, you see prayer and supplication once again joined together like our text. So praying at all times in the Spirit with the prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance. Prayer comes from awareness of those around us. How we pray and what we pray is informed by the needs of the people and places and events of those around us. That means that prayer must be the result of watchfulness that we are alert to the triumphs and trials of the people around us and the praises and the problems of our fellow believers, that we may pray specifically for them. It's an expression of watchfulness. It's also an expression of expectation. Philippians 4, 6, another well-known verse. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication. Once again, prayer and supplication partner together. In everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. This verse, written to the Philippians, issues a call to them to draw nearer to the Lord, offering prayer. But notice it says, with thanksgiving. Before even knowing the outcome, the prayer offers thanksgiving because there's an expectation that the Lord's going to act. And in whatever way he acts, it will be consistent with his character, which is good. Finally, this is an expression of hope. Speaking about widowed women later on in 1 Timothy, Paul writes, She, who is truly a widow left all alone, she has set her hope on God and continues in, guess what, supplications and prayers, night and day. In a saddened state, having lost the person close to her, her husband, and left alone, she has hope in the Lord, a hope that compels praying to the very one who is still with her, God. This general prayer indicates a relationship with the Lord. So that no matter the circumstances, whether difficult or wonderful, in that moment, a natural reaction is to trust the Lord by praying to him. When sharing the struggles of life, the one who engages in this type of prayer doesn't say, I will pray for you. That person says, let's pray now. On our travels, one of the things we did was attend a NASCAR weekend, that was part of going early, knowing that that was taking place before the convention, something we want to do as a family. I've always said I enjoy NASCAR, you probably don't know how much. Many years ago, I used to travel around the Northwest following a certain tour, and I bought a scanner, kinda like you would see a police scanner, but portable. And I did that with two headsets so that I could listen to the drivers while they raced. We took that with us on this trip, because I happen to still have it. And so each day, there were three consecutive days of racing. Myself and the kids got to listen to the drivers. What was exciting is on day two and day three, you can't listen to all the drivers, so I just pick some at random, some that I think are going to be good to listen to. And on those second and third days, driver on one day, a guy by the name of Justin Allgaier, and the driver on another day, a guy by the name of Michael McDowell, as they're going through their final lap before coming to the green flag, prayed over the radio. It was kind of exciting to be able to hear that on the headset and to have the kids hear that. It was just a general prayer that we're talking about here of, Lord, we get to do this. We're thankful to you for that. It wasn't public over the PA system. This was just between driver and his crewmates and everybody there. Please keep us safe. Help us to fixate on you. They were good prayers. This general prayer, expressing watchfulness and expectation and hope, it's a reminder that we live in a world full of sin. And the only alleviation comes... By submitting to the Lord in prayer and so we have a facet of supplication and a facet of prayer I want you to note third a facet of petition a facet of petition or some of your Bibles may say intercession one of the aspects of humanity's relationship with God is it always strikes me is this relationship through conversation it would have been the Lord's prerogative, or could have been, to just create every person and then let them be if He so chose. But He doesn't. He seeks this ongoing, life changing, soul satisfying relationship with each member of His creation by conversing with them regularly and then asking them to converse with Him regularly. While he converses with us through his word, he calls upon us to converse with him through prayer, as we've already seen in the first words of our verse. But this word petition signifies Christ-like conversation. Notice two characteristics about the word or consider them. First, it is characterized by Christ. To petition the Lord is to intercede on behalf of someone. Where have we seen this before in Scripture? The author of Hebrews describes Christ that way, as someone who intercedes on behalf of others. Hebrews 7.25, consequently, he, Christ, is able to save the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Aware of someone's needs to petition the Lord is to pray on their behalf then, just as Christ has prayed or interceded for believers. When was the last time you prayed for someone like Christ has prayed for you? The word petition, though, gets even more specific. Because it's often used not just for a petition for friends, but for enemies. Remember Matthew 5, 44. Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray or petition for those who persecute you. Same word used in our text. Love your enemies and petition for those who persecute you. At the end of Stephen's life, as he was giving his life for the gospel, Stephen prayed for those who persecuted him. As he's being stoned in Acts 7, the end of Acts 7, it it reads, And he and Stephen said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man, standing at the right hand of God, But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of the young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, Stephen called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. To petition the Lord is to intercede on behalf of others, whether they are friend or foe, asking for the Lord to fulfill his will and their needs, just as Christ has interceded for us. But not only is this characterized by Christ, it's characterized by conversation. The word needs to meet up with someone in order to spend time talking with them. It should be a familiar back-and-forth conversation. There are a lot of people who find prayer uncomfortable and very awkward, and sometimes both. They dislike praying publicly, they dislike praying privately, and again, sometimes both. Why? Probably because they don't do it enough. If we are uncomfortable with prayer, it probably means our prayer life is stale and stagnant. And By my own admission, I'll, I'll confess to you that I don't often enjoy conversing, especially on the phone, as an example. It takes a lot of intentional effort to reach out to people and to have a conversation. But you know what happens when I do? When it's all said and done, I usually walk away very grateful for the time of conversation. In fact, I often say, I'm glad we were able to do that. The other thing is that the more I do it, the more comfortable with it I become. The same is true when I reach out to the Lord. The more I do it, the easier it becomes. And the more I do it, the more familiar I become with him. This is what it means to intercede or petition It is a conversation with God to petition the Lord for our needs or the needs of others in the same way that Christ prays for his people. I want you to know finally then a facet of thanksgiving. A fourth element of prayer to a good and generous God is to acknowledge that goodness and that generosity through prayer. In his letter to Colossians, Paul describes the character of one who is walking with Christ in chapter two, verses six and seven, saying, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. The disposition of a believer is thankfulness. And now that disposition is expressed by being thankful in prayer. It is evidence of the concept that out of the mouth flows the heart because out of a thankful heart comes thankfulness and prayer acknowledging one's gratitude to God. The prayer of thanksgiving does this in two ways. First, it acknowledges goodness in all circumstances. It's likely that you've heard 1 Thessalonians 5:18 says give thanks in all circumstances this may surprise you. That word all there actually means all. There's no parameter set. There's nothing there to say what or when to express thankfulness. It says to do it in all circumstances. It does not matter if the situation is agreeable to us or not. The response is thankfulness. Whether again triumph or trial, Joy or sorrow, all circumstances generate thanksgiving because all circumstances are an expression of God's goodness. Each one is specific to our need, a design of God's wisdom to create growth in our lives. And in that way, they become a blessing to us, even the trials. What you're encountering right now is part of God's design for your growth. And even the most intense of trials produces good. And a prayer and thanksgiving in all circumstances acknowledges that goodness in all situations. There is goodness in all circumstances because God is in all circumstances. And that's what thanksgiving does, acknowledges God in all circumstances. To express thankfulness is to acknowledge God's activity in our lives. We see this in the Old Testament. At the Lord's deliverance, the response was praise, to thank the Lord. Oftentimes, there might have been pausing long enough to offer a sacrifice or a building of an altar or both. Today, we acknowledge God's circumstances by pausing long enough to offer prayers of thanksgiving, praises of thanksgiving to him. Anglican Archbishop Richard Trench, he highlights something very profound When he noted that in heaven, all other prayer will cease. There will be no need for supplication. There will be no need for intercession. There will be no need for any of these other things except thanksgiving. While all those other forms of prayer cease, thanksgiving will continue. All needs will be filled in Christ. So we don't need to pray for our needs. We just need to thank Christ for filling those needs. Because his work is effective continually, our Lord is worthy of our prayers and thanksgiving continually. As Paul transitions from his introduction to the primary purpose of this letter, he begins by urging prayer. First of all then, he writes... I urge supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Notice once again those four distinctive words, prayer, intercessions, supplications, thanksgivings. Each captures a different quality of prayer so that when you put them together, what you have is this beautiful picture of our relationship with the Lord. When I started studying this passage about a month ago, I hesitated and and had no intention really of focusing on just these four words. And there's a reason for that. The text doesn't do that. Paul uses four distinct words here to capture different aspects of prayer. But the focus and the purpose of what he's writing is simply to get people to pray. That's the intention. It's to call attention to their need to pray. But after some prayer myself, I I came to appreciate these distinctions and convicted by the need to at least discuss them to some degree. Individually, they provide guidance for our prayer. But then they come together and and they show both the purpose and the priority of prayer, which are always centered around God. For example, according to these words that we just went through, even, even the request we make... They are determined by who God is in our life. Our prayers are not about asking the Lord to give us what we want. They're about asking the Lord to give us what he wants to give us. Prayer becomes like that ornament then. Or or maybe it's better to think of it like a diamond. My understanding is that there are hundreds of ways to cut a diamond. Only ten cuts, so really are the most popular. You could leave that diamond uncut, simply polishing it, and it would still be a diamond. But begin to shape it and cut it, adding a facet here and another there. And that radiance begins to shine forth. That's when its true majesty is revealed. The same is true of prayer. We can leave it one dimensional, and it would still be prayer. But we can add these other facets, and that majesty and that magnificence of prayer, it's revealed further, and what we're left with is something that we should be awed by. And so when I look at these four facets of prayer, all I can think of is that this is a beautiful thing that the Lord has given us. Again, he could have left us to our own. Never needing a relationship with us. He already had the perfect relationship that existed in the Trinity. But he's made himself fully available to converse with us. Why would we not make this more of a priority in our lives? John Stott, who was a longtime pastor of All Souls Church in London, observed how far short of prayer that, our, that churches often fall. And he says, some years ago, I attended public worship in a certain church. The pastor was absent on holiday and a lay elder the pastoral, um, offered the pastoral prayer. He prayed the pastor might enjoy a good vacation, which was fine. And the two lady members of the congregation might be healed, which was also fine. We should pray for the sick. But that was all. The intercession can hardly have lasted 30 seconds. And then he goes on, I came away saddened, sensing that the church worshipped a little village god of their own devising. There was no recognition of the needs of the world and no attempt to embrace the world in prayer. Stott tells the story of the Church of England, or a church in England, but sadly it could be a description of many churches in the United States. We find that for the most part, prayer is a matter of routine. It is said in the same way, often at the same time, sometimes at the same request and even with the same words. What is the state of the church? To know that, we can begin by asking, what is the state of its prayer? Whenever we take prayer less than seriously, we are less than biblical Christians. And so sometimes we should do well by praying that the Lord would teach us how to pray. Let's pray. Our Father God, you're a great and glorious God, Lord. And Father, that is expressed in this great and glorious gift of prayer. Father, what an amazing aspect it is, because it invites us to have a deeper, thriving relationship with you, Lord. And so, Father, I do pray, teach us to pray. Teach us to wholly depend upon you and and call upon you in our times of greatest trial, in our times of greatest triumph, Lord. May we offer these different facets, these supplications, these intercessions, these general prayers and these thanksgivings, Lord. May they be a cry out of seeing who you are. May they be a response to what you have done, Lord and Father. Just continue to teach us to pray, not so that we would be better prayers with more eloquent words, but so that we would be more faithful <coughs> prayers in a more consistent basis. We thank you for the work that you're doing through that. And it is in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.